Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice, and we're joined today by our general counsel, Mike Sakopoulos. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, we continue our whirlwind tour, ripped from the headlines, lessons learned from the news related to medical legal cases, with nuggets of wisdom to be disseminated to our listeners so that they don't become future protagonist in our Rip from the Headlines seminar, correct? Absolutely. And we um, we have quite the uh, salacious uh, case for the next one, don't we? Yeah, we do. So this one um, goes under the title Inappropriate Sexual Content, $1.5 million award from the bench in Kansas. So here the plaintiff, who was an Iraq war veteran, was a patient. Um, getting treated for injuries to his back and left shoulder. Uh, these were injuries he sustained during, uh, during a war. And while treatment, the defendant was subjected to inappropriate sexual comments, innuendo, and inappropriate physical examinations. Um, the defendant conducted numerous genital examinations of the plaintiff. And I'm just quoting here, okay? I don't judge. Well, I guess I do judge. Without using medical gloves, repeatedly, repeatedly fondling the plaintiff's genitals, making inappropriate com comments about the plaintiff's penis, and withholding the plaintiff's pain medication if he did not allow the unnecessary genital examinations to occur. This is horrible. This is a horrible yeah. case. <laughs> okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um Beyond owing money, this is a lose-your-license situation. This is horrible. So anyway, uh, to continue, um, due to the defendant's actions, the plaintiff suffered past, present, and future shame, humiliation, medically significant emotional distress, loss of enjoyment of life, loss of sleep, and natural rest, as well as anger. So bench trial, that means the judge made the decision, awarded the plaintiff one million five. $127,000 and $64. Let me repeat that again. $1,527,064. I have no idea how they make these calculations. There, there must be some formula associated with it, right? One would hope, right? All right, let's, let's dive in here. What's the first rule of thumb um, with opposite sex? Um, examinations it's chaperones um it doesn't end the analysis but i think and this is just it's not just my opinion i think it's the opinion of many that if you're going to do an examination that could at all be perceived as intimate and even then i'm not even sure i would limit it to that but let's let's start with that an intimate type of examination, which would involve breast, genitals, urologic evaluation, gynecological evaluation. I do think it is probably a good idea to have a chaperone uh, in the room, which is the same gender as the patient. Um, and even if you are the um, same gender as a patient, it's often a good idea to have yet another person in the room. Um, I would certainly ask the patient because sometimes they don't want yet another person in the room. But if and when there is an allegation down the road of he said, she said, or he said, he said, or whatever, there will be another individual who is a witness to all of this and can potentially save 
the, the doctor or staff a lot of heartache, correct? I, I agree. Uh, I think just the presence of a chaperone does away with um, many kinds of, of allegations that, that can come, come about. So it changes the complete dynamic in my, my opinion. So, so it's interesting. Um, many complaints are certainly women against men, but it's not always the case. There are men who complain against men. And then there's a case that we uh, blogged about in the not too distant past. It was a Canadian female oncologist who started a sexual relationship with her cancer patient. This is a patient that came into the emergency room. Ultimately, the female oncologist was uh, was called and started treating the patient uh, over a prolonged period of time. I mean, saw the patient in the ER, but then ultimately um, took care of the patient over time. And they initiated a sexual relationship. Um, she was older than this patient. And um, I think they had sex in the hospital that uh, she went to his, um, his house. And he lived with his parents. The patient lived with his parents. Um, so, I mean, I would call this a bona fide relationship, but this case initially began um, as a doctor-patient relationship and arguably continued as a doctor-patient relationship, even though some boundaries were violated. And they broke up. And when they broke up, um, well, they broke up because the oncologist started seeing uh, another physician, and it certainly um, had the look and feel of a spurn lover. Um, the patient was unhappy and filed a complaint to the to an equivalent board of medicine up in Canada, and and this oncologist lost her license. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that while many complaints are women against men, um, in that example up in Canada, it was um, man versus a woman. So the the mere fact that um, it's one sex complaining about another. Those days have passed. Uh, right now, this is a equal opportunity complaint factory, and I think everybody needs to pay uh, attention to this. That That's right. And I think that we all need to understand that certain individual sensitivity is greater or, or less than uh, potentially our own. So chaperones help with that in that you might think um, a certain type of an examination is purely clinical, but it might be misread by a, a patient. A chaperone, uh, I think, helps to uh, provide some degree of assurance that it is uh, completely uh, clinical in nature. So in terms of the examination, general rule of thumb is to explain to the patient what you are going to do, what you plan to do before you do it. And then if if in the explanation or if in the examination you, you detect any discomfort, I think it makes sense to acknowledge it and pay attention uh, to it. Um, if, you know, if you work in a practice that has both male and female physicians and the patient expresses a much stronger preference for a same-sex physician, I probably wouldn't fight it. I'd probably try to honor it. It doesn't happen frequently, but it happens enough I think if you can solve the problem or the perceived issue, it will go a long way to keeping that patient in the practice and sidestepping a potential um, misperception. Make sense? No, I, I, I agree with that. Absolutely. So um, the other thing is that not all complaints that are filed are based on 
I guess I'll call I'll call it real sexual abuse or even examination of intimate body parts. There's certainly one complaint that we're aware of where the argument, as it was filed by the patient, was and actually the doctor here was not even examining intimate body parts. There was no examination of breast um, genitalia. It was not a urological or gynecologic examination, but the allegation was that as the doctor approached to listen to the patient's uh, chest, <laughs> actually, this was the back of the chest, just listening to breath sounds. The allegation was that the doctor was pleasuring himself by grinding his groin against the patient's knee. Grinding his groin against the patient's knee. Um, was he? No, he was not. But that was the allegation and that was a complaint. And you can certainly imagine in some situations, the the doctor would be unaware of, you know, how close they are to the patient, whether the patient is uncomfortable with this proximity. I think this is, again, one of those situations where having a chaperone in the room would help prevent against the allegation uh, itself. You've certainly come across instances like this. Mike, have you not? Uh, I have. And... You're right. Sometimes I think that patients mistake certain behavior for um, something of a of a sexual uh, nature just by how exams need to be done in close proximity. In look, there are certainly examples of of real abuse out there that we all need to right. combat, deter, deal with um, immediately. Uh, but there are also issues, and I don't think that when they come up that patients are trying to manufacture these for financial reasons. I think that your patients come to you, and some of them come to you um, with a really terrible past and mm -hmm. are very concerned about certain things, extraordinarily sensitive to a degree that we might not uh, appreciate. And so... Again, I think a chaperone helps. A family member being uh, being present can also uh, drop someone's level of of anxiety. And certainly, the describe what is about to happen before it happens and check in with the patient is this is this all right as it goes uh, goes a long way towards lessening people's fear. These are all excellent points. And as we were preparing for the podcast. Today, I was turned on to, I think, an interesting organization. It's called patientmodesty.org. Again, patientmodesty.org. And we'll try and include this in the show notes. And it's an exhaustive website. And it focuses on many different things. And I'm just, I'm just enumerating some of the things that they discuss on their website. And what Number one would be whether patients need to even have all of their clothes removed for an adequate examination or procedure. Do all patients need to be completely stripped down naked with a gown in place, or can many examinations be performed with clothes in place? Number two, they describe a particular bra that can be used for shoulder surgery so the patient does not have to expose the breast. These are types of, apparently these are already commercially available and for patients who may be sensitive to um, 
you know, to being fully unclothed for a procedure that isn't focused on um, the uh, the body part being addressed in the uh, procedure. These, I think, are very interesting and healthy ideas. Moving forward, um, this talks about underwear specially made for colonoscopy, so genitalia not visible is interesting. I just had my colonos my screening colonoscopy done 10 days ago, and um, I'm pretty sure that I did not have this in place. Next, the argument for allowing patients to leave their underwear on during many procedures. Um, and again, I'm just enumerating these items uh, that are identified in much greater detail on their extremely interesting website. Does a shirt need to be removed to listen to the heart? And what about training programs? For example, medical students who, are, who may um, be involved with fully anesthetized patients learning how to do a vaginal speculum exam. These are all interesting um, discussions, and I, I do recommend that people go to their website just to see the type of work they're doing. I, I certainly learned quite a bit by doing this. Um, I'm not stating that everything here um, needs to be adopted as gospel, but I do think they make strong arguments for at least thinking about this and, and certainly accepting uh, some of these, and I can go on. They also talk about, and this is something I knew very little about, said, what about pap smears for true virgins? For example, um, um, the argument is that cervical cancer is generally caused by um, HPV, virus, and uh, sexual activity, or a mother who took this compound called DES many years ago between the years of 1938 and 1971 to prevent miscarriage. Um, the flip side of the argument is you may not necessarily know who's a true virgin because not all patients are entirely truthful. So again, I, I do recommend that for those who are interested in learning more about um, you know, the, the challenges associated with um, keeping patients comfortable with regular examinations and examinations of more intimate nature. It's patientmodesty.org. And then let's segue into the, the obvious fact that different cultures have different sensitivities. Um, in America, it's a melting pot of many different uh, cultures, and some are um, some do place a higher premium on keeping the body fully clothed or not disclosing any intimate body parts except to those of the same sex. And they spend some time on this website uh, really going into um, how to manage this with different cultures. And they even have lists of doctors who are aware of this, sensitive to this, and um, serve as a uh, referral source. Anyway, I don't want to I don't want to steal their thunder. I think it's just easier to go to their website and see the various types of con conversations they um, they are spurring. So what happens if you get hit with an allegation of sexual abuse? Um, there are two ways that this can cause near-term challenges. One would be triggers a board complaint. The board would consider this to be a um, an alarming event, and it's one of the few situations that can turn into an immediate revocation of your license. If this is credible, they may very well say you're a danger to the public, you can't be trusted with your medical license, you can't do any examinations. 
and away you go. Um, that's not necessarily the case related to standard of care violations. Typically, a single standard of care violation would not trigger a board action which revokes your license. So this is treated as an extremely serious event. In parallel, a police report can and often is filed, which would mean that the police show up at your office and they have no choice but to interview uh, you. So allegation of se sexual abuse can certainly trigger a board complaint with immediate potential board action, as well as a police report, which means in advance, you want to make sure this does not happen. And it, it's less likely to happen if you have the chaperones we've been talking about. If you are aware of any discomfort the patient may have in advance of you performing an examination or while there's an examination, I would be aware of it. I would probably document it and I'd probably try to mitigate it with this particular patient, if at all possible. Mike? So this has been an area, as you all might imagine, of um, major concern for boards of medicine. In fact, the Federation of State Medical Boards has worked on certain types of, of policies. And in the, the fact scenario that we, we dis, uh, discussed, the withholding of uh, medication, particularly uh, narcotics, that, that allegation in, in that it was withheld uh, because of the patient not wanting to undergo a certain type of examination, uh, almost universally now, if that is proven to be true, a medical license is, is lost. Um, that was not necessarily the case in the past, always a serious situation, uh, but the, the tolerance level has uh, greatly uh, gone, gone down for any of this type of, of behavior. And maybe what we could do is talk a little bit about if you had a colleague that um, someone made an allegation of, how would you handle it within within your practice? Because these are things that need to be thought out in advance. If the allegation comes up, you don't want to be trying to develop the playbook as, as you go. And certainly, if a chaperone was, was not involved um, while the matter is being worked out, that physician needs to be chaperoned at, at, at all times, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think your duty, so for example, if if a, if one of your patients says, hey, I was being examined by this particular doctor and this is what happened. If if at any point the, the new physician perceives that this could be any type of sexual abuse, they have a duty to report this and they probably have a duty to report it to the Board of Medicine. Um, in many ways, it's like child abuse. I mean, you're your obligation is to err on the side of caution, which means reporting. And and this can be a challenge because you're now getting secondhand information or thirdhand information. Um, you don't know whether it's true. You're not the person who is going to be investigating it, but you can certainly see how this turns into a cascade of badness uh, for you as the as the providing providing physician. But how do you address this up front? Well. If you've got policies in place where you are, um, you've got chaperones in place for sensitive types of examinations, perhaps even more broadly, chaperones in place for almost all types of examinations, um, you will have preemptively played offense. 
uh, on this. In addition, if you are aware of any patient's sensitivities, um, in advance as you're describing what you're about to do or while the examination is being done and act on it, potentially to stop the examination, again, you will be in a better uh, situation. One of the challenges is once that once a report is filed, um, the tendency is to turn it over to your MedMal carrier. Um, they'll look at your policy and say, guess what's not covered? This is not covered. Um, it's probably excluded from covered. Now, they may have an obligation to hire an attorney while this is being sorted out to make sure that one of the tangential issues in a complaint isn't, isn't um, covered. But by and large, you can see how this can quickly become expensive if you're hiring your own attorney, particularly if you're trying to keep your license uh, in place. So again, think about this up front. And then finally, before we leave, we probably should just spend one or two minutes talking about transgender uh, issues. Um, it's something that very few of us have had any training in, and it's certainly a ripe source of litigation. So for example, there was a case not too long ago where a, um, a male to female um, affirmation uh, procedure or affirmation was um, being uh, performed and patient called the practice and said they wanted a breast augmentation uh, procedure. And the practice says, well, we're not really trained in uh, male to female um, breast augmentation procedures. They said, well, you do do breast augmentations in general uh, on cis female patients. The answer is yes. And this turned, and, and by the way, the practice said, um, we'd be happy to refer you to an academic center down the road that has extensive background and training and experience because there are unique issues relevant to getting this done right. Well, anyway, this turned into litigation and probably still being litigated by the time you know this podcast goes out. So I think the challenge is, is just getting enough training to know how to address this in a sophisticated way. Um, I think that we're all gonna need to keep learning how to do this to avoid um, being in the crosshairs, these are the types of cases. If they say that you're discriminating based on uh, sex and gender, et cetera, that may be yet another, don't kill the messenger, exclusion in your professional liability policy. So the more training you get in this upfront and having policies in place that hopefully have been vetted by an attorney, the better off you'll be if and when you, um, you are hit with these issues. So that is our whirlwind tour that started with a $1.5 million settlement related to a defendant, I assume physician, um, or a healthcare institution inappropriately fondling genitalia um, and saying, I'm not gonna give you pain medication unless you allow me to continue fondling your genitalia. And hopefully we've learned some broader lessons that'll be more relevant to the 99.999% of people that would never engage in that behavior anyway. Any final thoughts, Mike? Uh, no, I think you've covered it well, and I'm looking forward to moving on to other topics in uh, future um, medical uh, minutes. A amen to that, brother. Thank you. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice, and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at one. 
877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.